November is Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. We don't have the advocacy breast cancer and prostate cancer, for example, enjoy. I want to advocate for additional support, and that's what having a Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month does. On today's show, learn about effective surgical procedures for battling pancreas cancer. Unlike other institutions, we have developed a very complex, but I would say also understandable system to determine what is resectable and what is not. And later, discover a clinical trial aimed at improving patient treatments and outcomes. We need to forego trial and error and go straight to understanding what's the best treatment for patients so that they don't have to be subjected to chemotherapy that may be suboptimal. We're focused on pancreatic cancer surgeries and treatments. Inside this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Welcome to CTSI Discovery Radio. I'm your host, Brian Belmer. CTSI Discovery Radio is brought to you by the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin. The CTSI is a consortium of researchers, doctors, scientists, and others representing eight institutions, including the Medical College of Wisconsin, Milwaukee School of Engineering, Marquette University, the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, Children's Wisconsin, Freighter Hospital, Versity Blood Center of Wisconsin, and the Zablocki VA Medical Center. The CTSI works collaboratively across all of our member institutions. Our mission is advancing health through research and discovery. Earlier this year, CTSI Discovery Radio explored symptoms of and risk factors for pancreatic cancer. We encourage you to go back and check out episode number 81 of our show. With November being Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month, our first focus today is on surgeries to treat the disease. And we're honored to have Dr. Doug Evans, an internationally renowned oncologist at the forefront of the global battle against pancreatic cancer, here to share his expert insights. Dr. Evans is the chair of the Department of Surgery and Donald C. Osman Family Foundation Professor of Surgery at the Medical College of Wisconsin. Dr. Evans begins our conversation by sharing a bit about the form and function of the pancreas. The pancreas is a funny little organ. It was for some reason placed in the back of the abdomen in kind of a difficult location, and it has two major functions. It produces pancreatic enzymes from what we call the exocrine pancreas, which help digest fats and other foods. And it also makes hormones, the so-called endocrine part of the pancreas. The most common hormone is insulin, but it makes a variety of other hormones. Unfortunately, in some people, tumors can develop in the pancreas. Tumors can develop from either the exocrine, the pancreatic enzyme processing cells, and the tumor can also develop from the endocrine pancreas, and we refer to that as a pancreatic neuroendocrine tumor, or PNET, P-N-E-T. Which is the most common type of pancreatic cancer? The most common type of pancreatic cancer is from the exocrine pancreas. It's pancreatic adenocarcinoma. Right now, it's the second leading cause of adult cancer death in the state of Wisconsin behind only lung cancer. And it will soon become the second leading cause of adult cancer death in the United States. So it's really the cancer problem of the next decade. Can different types of pancreatic cancer show up in different areas? And what are the different areas of the pancreas? Yeah, they can occur 
occur really anywhere, and the pancreas lies transverse in the abdomen, so the head is on the right. And then as we move towards the left, you go to the neck, body, and tail. Both adenocarcinoma and neuroendocrine cancers can occur anywhere throughout the gland at relatively even distribution. But while Dr. Evans and his team know what to look for and where, it's challenging not knowing what causes the cancer. The reason why pancreatic cancer is such a difficult problem is because we don't know what causes it. And it typically affects lovely, lovely people. We oftentimes say that only really nice people get pancreas cancer. And if you spent all day with me in my clinic in the cancer center, I think you would see that. Most patients have taken really good care of themselves, so they have lived long enough to unfortunately develop pancreatic cancer. Still, there are a few known suspects. There's a tiny percentage of pancreas cancer, which is probably tobacco-related. A significant amount of tobacco exposure certainly may predispose to pancreas cancer. There also is a tiny percentage of pancreas cancer related to diet and obesity. And then a tiny percent of pancreas cancer is probably related to a mutation in all of the cells of a patient's body. What's also known are a few inherited syndromes that can increase risk for pancreatic cancer. Probably the most well-known is the BRCA or BRCA mutations associated with breast cancer. There is perhaps a tenfold increase in pancreatic cancer in patients harboring a BRCA mutation. And there are also some families in which pancreatic cancer is common. It's present in maybe three or four individuals within a couple generations. And sometimes we can determine the reason for that at a genetic level, and sometimes we can't. Which is one of the reasons why, today... Each patient in his program at Freightert in the Medical College of Wisconsin undergoes what we call germline mutation testing. We extract DNA from the lymphocytes in their blood and run it through a panel of genes most closely linked with pancreatic cancer, usually around 250 to 270 genes. So really an exciting time for the future. Next, we asked Dr. Evans what makes pancreatic cancer so aggressive in general. It usually has outside the pancreas at the time of diagnosis, which is certainly not true for other solid tumors. And even in cases when the cancer's detected early, localizing it only to the pancreas, it can still be very aggressive. Even sometimes tiny pancreatic cancers that are only a quarter or a half inch in size will have spread to other parts of the body at the time of diagnosis. And it's hard to diagnose it early because we don't have a reliable blood test right now. And if the cancer does not arise close to the bile duct, thereby causing the patient to become jaundiced or have bile duct obstruction, then the cancer can grow undetected and have a greater likelihood that it will spread to other parts of the body at the time of diagnosis. So then, at what point is surgery typically performed to treat a patient's pancreatic cancer? Great question. You know, it's very common for our patients, their families, to look upon surgery as their main goal. They want to have the tumor surgically excised. And he adds that surgery is necessary in many, perhaps most cases. But it certainly is not sufficient. From a technical perspective, one of the really great things that we have brought forward is a very objective staging system based upon what we can surgically excise and what we can't. And this is after reviewing the CT scan or in some cases the MRI. We have taken the anatomy of the pancreas and surrounding blood vessels and how it is imaged 
to a next level so that we can say to a patient and their family, this tumor is operable or this tumor isn't, and the likelihood that we will have a successful surgery is X percent based upon your stage at the time of diagnosis. Which is also very helpful in providing critically important hope for enduring what Dr. Evans describes as a marathon. Treatment for pancreas cancer, it's a marathon. And obviously, we never want the treatment to be worse than the disease, but it certainly is common that by the time the patient gets through with surgery, they've been through sometimes 10 months of treatment, and it can be certainly exhausting. What factors determine which patients can have surgery? When God was putting the pancreas in, it went into an unfortunate location, so it's nestled in the back part of the upper abdomen, and the blood vessels that go to the pancreas, spleen, liver, small intestine, and the first part of the large intestine are all intimately associated with the pancreas, so that if one develops a malignant tumor in the pancreas, you can easily see how that tumor could be right next to one of those critical blood vessels so that the blood vessels need to be replaced. Which, of course, may or may not be possible. We would use the terms resectable and unresectable based upon the relationship of the tumor to adjacent blood vessels. And I think unlike other institutions, we have developed a very complex, but I would say also understandable system to determine what is resectable and what is not based upon objective anatomic criteria, not based upon physician opinion, which can change with time. Another reality of pancreas cancer surgery. We don't change the physiology of the patient. Unlike a patient who undergoes a liver transplant or a heart transplant, that patient, their body works better after the surgery. What we do with cancer surgery is we simply remove a segment of the human body. We don't improve the physiology of the patient, and that's important. Especially when you consider the average age of a pancreas cancer surgery patient. Pancreas cancer affects typically older patients. The average age in our database is around 68 or 69. We frequently have patients in their early 80s. How much we can do in the operating room is based upon the extent the tumor has involved surrounding blood vessels with the important understanding that we cannot leave the patient under general anesthesia for too long a period of time. These factors, plus the exact location of the tumor, help determine which type of surgery is performed. Beginning on the left side, you can remove the left side of the pancreas or the distal pancreas. If it's a pancreatic adenocarcinoma or the exocrine type of pancreas cancer, that usually involves also removing the spleen because blood vessels that go to the spleen and more importantly the vein that drains the spleen is directly attached to the pancreas. A benefit of this procedure is... Sometimes that can be done laparoscopically or now in the current era with the robot. The advantage of the robot is the incision would not be as large as one may see with an open operation. If the tumor is situated in the middle... You can remove the middle of the pancreas and then hook the end of the pancreas into either the stomach or the small intestine, which is called a middle segment pancreatectomy. Or, if the tumor is on the right side... The operation to remove the right side of the pancreas in the region of the pancreatic head, that involves the bile duct, the lower part of the stomach, and the first part of the small intestine called the duodenum. And the first person to try to remove that segment of the body was named Alan Whipple. He first described what now is oftentimes referred to as the Whipple procedure. It really has become an extremely safe operation. He elaborates on the Whipple procedure. So it removes the 
pancreatic head, the gallbladder, the lower bile duct, and the first part of the small intestine, and then the pancreas, bile duct, and the stomach are reconnected. And what determines whether or not we remove part of the stomach is usually the size and location of the tumor. The Whipple operation is done every week at this institution, usually two or three times per week. And it's very clear that patients do better if they're treated at centers that have a reasonable volume of this operation. But while surgery is often successful, Dr. Evans explains why he adheres to a surgery-last approach to treatment. The reason why we typically apply surgery later in the treatment sequence, pancreatic cancer is oftentimes spread outside the pancreas at the time of diagnosis. So, while it may seem counterintuitive, waiting to do surgery can improve a patient's outcome. There are three things that determine the success of our cancer treatment. Number one is the aggressiveness of the tumor. Number two is the underlying biology of the patient. And the third is the effectiveness of our treatment. All three of those are critically important, but if we can kill most of the cells at the periphery of the tumor and all of the cells that may have escaped the pancreas before we do the operation, there'll be a much greater chance that the patient will survive. And what he and his team are doing is working. We're really proud of our ability to recover the patient on the 12th floor of the Center for Advanced Care. Our readmission rate is very low, and overall our complication rate is extremely low. In the database that assesses all of the major academic medical centers, we're certainly at the top of the list with our outcomes from the Whipple procedure. Dr. Evans tells us the Laban Pancreatic Cancer Program at Fredericton, the Medical College of Wisconsin, is named for Marianne and Pete Laban, a wonderful family in Milwaukee that made an incredibly generous major gift to our program. And he shares what's special about this world-class program. Bond Pancreatic Cancer Program is unique to truly give the best possible care to the patients of today. And then secondly, we have an undying passion for innovation, discovery, research to ensure that we fulfill our obligation to the patient of tomorrow. We're lucky to have Dr. Susan Tsai as the director of the program. With Dr. Tsai's leadership and the tremendous support of Marianne and Pete Laban, right now we're firing on all cylinders and we strive to make our program the very best that it can be in the entire world. Speaking of Dr. Susan Tsai, she's also joining us today to share her expert insights on a new clinical trial she's leading. As mentioned, Dr. Tsai is director of the Laban Pancreatic Cancer Program and is an associate professor, Department of Surgery, Division of Surgical Oncology, at Fredert and the Medical College of Wisconsin. She begins by sharing news of an important scientific breakthrough which finds researchers now defining pancreatic cancer tumors as having two distinct subtypes. Right now, for pancreas cancer, pathologists look at it under the microscope and they make a diagnosis. But I think what we are starting to realize is that, just like in breast cancer, where there are hormone-positive breast cancers and hormone-negative, there's much more below just even looking visually at a tumor that's helpful to understand. And so that's where the subtyping comes in for pancreas cancer. You know, even though two tumors may look exactly the same, the actual underlying molecular pathways may be very different in two tumors that may look similar. The two subtypes are known as classical and basal-like. So the classical versus basal-like subtypes are at kind of a molecular level based off of RNA. The DNA is transcribed into RNA, and then the RNA is then made into protein. So it's kind of that step between DNA and proteins. 
And based on the RNA signatures of many different pancreas cancers studied, they funneled down into either a classical or basal-like subtype. The discovery of these two subtypes is important because... At the core, these tumors tend to be very different in either the way they react to chemotherapies, how they utilize energy like glucose, and those are some ways that we can actually take advantage of how to better select treatments so that classical tumors can have a specific type of therapy and potentially basal-like tumors need a very different therapy. What makes the two subtypes different from each other? I think everyone wishes that we could tell classical versus basal-like apart, but under the microscope, they actually look the same, and characterization is even more molecular than cellular. So currently, we don't have an easy way to tell classical versus basal. Although these tumor types don't look different, they act different, which is important in pancreas cancer research. In the past, we were only able to look at things under the microscope and say, okay, the tumor is this big, or there's so many lymph nodes involved. What the classical versus basal-like is able to do is go beyond anatomic characterization and start to potentially link the type or the histology or the biology of a tumor with potential treatments. And it's this idea of the two subtypes responding differently to treatments at the core of a clinical trial she's leading. We'll learn more in a moment. First, how and when was the discovery of the two subtypes made? The characterization of pancreas cancers, there's a long history in this going back all the way to maybe 2009. Some of the first papers were actually published out of Johns Hopkins. And at that time, they were just looking at DNA sequencing, like whole genome sequencing, where they were trying to characterize major pathways in pancreas cancer. And there's been multiple iterations of this large genomic analysis of these tumors. Which, as you can imagine is a painstakingly time-consuming process. When people talk about doing these large next-generation sequencing projects, it takes a lot of data analysis and bioinformatics to understand things. So then when people get biopsied, to turn around a deep sequencing analysis like this can take a month at the fastest. So it takes a lot of time and a lot of energy. However, today... The group that we're collaborating with refined that process and were able to, from thousands and thousands of genes, cull it down to eight critical gene pairs. Based on the expression of these eight pairs of genes, they could make reliably a call of classical versus basal without having to do three or four weeks of bioinformatics and analysis. Making this an important discovery in advancing pancreatic cancer research. Pancreas is very jealous of other cancers really leading the way in precision medicine. In pancreas, everyone who walks through the door essentially will get the same therapy, and every cancer arises from an individual person. So to have one therapy be the perfect therapy for every single person the same way, it just doesn't work. And so this is a great advance to test whether we can get people to the most effective therapies without having an error in the trial and error process. And the discovery of these subtypes led Dr. Sai to her latest clinical trial, officially known as, well... The name of the trial is a little bit unwieldy. It's called the Purist Classification Guided Adaptive Neoadjuvant Therapy using RNA sequencing of endoscopic ultrasound samples. So you can understand why we don't want to say that over and over again. So we just call this the pancreas trial, so it's going to be very easy (laughs) to remember. Okay, the pancreas trial. Let's go with that. 
I was reading this paper from University of North Carolina. This group was the first group that defined subtyping using classical and basal-like terminology. So they were really the pioneers in this area. And they realized that technology was very cumbersome. So to make something that could potentially help patients, they'd have to streamline things. As a result, the team at UNC developed an assay, or test. Which can be done in a very short amount of time. Cancer patients don't have three to four weeks waiting for profiling. They really want and they need to get on treatment. And so the ability to use the test revolutionized our ability to bring precision medicine into the clinical realm. And now, Dr. Sai is utilizing this assay in the design of the pancreas clinical trial. The trial design is basically a subtyping of a patient's tumor, and that subtyping is done at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. And they report either a classical or basal-like subtype within usually seven business days, so it's a very rapid turnaround. Then... Patients are assigned to one of two standard of cares. Both of these chemotherapies would be given normally for pancreas cancer. In this situation, the subtype is paired with a specific chemotherapy, and we're testing to see whether that chemotherapy is effective for that subtype. She says that undertaking the pancreas clinical trial was a no-brainer because... on prior studies, there seems to be a relationship with classical subtypes responding to a specific kind of chemotherapy. That was shown in multiple retrospective studies that basically the study was done and then afterwards they went back and confirmed that they had classical subtype and they saw this very consistent relationship that classical subtype tumors respond to a certain type of chemotherapy. So for us, it was a no-brainer to say if you profile to classical that you will get that certain chemotherapy and if you're basal-like, then you get the alternative chemotherapy. And for pancreas cancer, this worked out perfectly because really there's two standard chemotherapies, it's one or the other. So it was perfectly matched to classical versus basal-like. But while it seems perfectly logical, it must be proven scientifically, which is why a clinical trial is needed. Dr. Sai tells us who exactly is participating in it. Patients have to have a suspicion of having pancreas cancer, so that usually is a mass in the pancreas, and this mass only limited to the pancreas. So patients with potentially disease outside the area of the pancreas in the liver, lungs, or other places, they would not be eligible. At the time of diagnosis, the biopsies for the test are done at that time, so they don't have to have a tissue diagnosis to enroll on profiling, but to get treated with a specific chemotherapy, of course, we have to have a diagnosis. So assuming that after the biopsy is done, patients have pancreas cancer, then they can actually get the associated chemotherapy. So it's kind of a two-part consent. One, to get the biopsy. The second, to get the chemotherapy. Once a patient's enrolled, what medications are involved? This is a really important question. There are two standard types of chemotherapy for pancreas cancer. One is called fulfurinox. I would say it's pretty tough, but in clinical trials, it has a slightly higher rate of response than the other option, which is gemcitabine, NAB paclitaxel. So we just call that gemnab. Gemnabs also been tested in clinical trials, very effective for pancreas cancer. In the medical community, there's a lot of debate about which is better or even if there is one that's better. But this clinical trial isn't to settle that debate so much as... There is no better, per se. It's just that we have to match patients a little bit more effectively. For example, I certainly have had patients who have had a modest response to fulfurinox. We switched them to Gemnav, and they had a phenomenal response. Now, imagine knowing which medication a patient will respond to before giving them either. We need to 
forego the trial and error part of things and go straight to understanding what's the best treatment for patients so that they don't have to be subjected to additional toxicities of the chemotherapy that may be suboptimal. So how long do patients participate? Once you're matched to the chemotherapy, we look at a response in two months. So you get two months of chemotherapy and we see whether the tumor is responded by CT scan and we check blood levels of tumor markers. So this is a blood test that we can measure how much disease is present. So if a tumor marker is going up, we don't like to see that with treatment. We like to see a tumor marker going down or response to therapy. Patients are only treated for two months on trial, so it's a very rapid endpoint. We just want to know that the chemotherapy and the tumor subtype relationship is true, and that readout is very quick. It's only at two months. Pancreas cancer patients are usually treated for longer than that, so when the trial ends, it doesn't mean that that's the end of the treatment for patients, and they're eligible to enroll in other trials. We actually have two additional trials that they can co-enroll on that will complete their neoadjuvant therapy. Considering the recent discovery of the two subtypes, the pancreas clinical trial hopes to be groundbreaking as well. It's the first trial of its kind to use subtyping to guide treatment. Precision medicine is not possible in a lot of patients who have pancreas cancer because a lot of the genes that are affected in pancreas cancer, there's not an effective molecular or precision medicine target that we can use. So we're looking more globally at the entire tumor biology and understanding what chemotherapies may work best for that subtype of tumor. The Pancreas Clinical Trial is funded through generous support by the Sina Magowitz Foundation. Roger Magowitz, his mother unfortunately passed away from pancreatic cancer, and he went on to found the Sina Magowitz Foundation in his mother's honor. This nonprofit organization supports novel clinical trials as well as provides an incredible network for patients and their families to have a support system and ultimately make an impact so that the experience that he had in watching his mother pass from pancreas cancer is not the standard for everyone in the future. The foundation is an excellent fit to collaborate with the MCW Laban Pancreatic Cancer Program. Roger Magowitz is a generous person, but he's also very interested in seeing tangible improvements in care. And I would say the same thing about our program. And together, Dr. Sai says they're able to make a difference. We need to be able to more nimbly match people with the most effective therapies from the very beginning. And we hope that this is the first step in doing that, looking a little bit deeper and more rapidly bringing effective therapies to patients. As mentioned, November is Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month. What's the importance of having this? Dr. Doug Evans. We don't have the advocacy that breast cancer and prostate cancer, for example, enjoy. I want to advocate for additional support for pancreatic cancer patients and their families. And that's what having a Pancreatic Cancer Awareness Month does. Dr. Susan Sai. The survival rates for pancreas cancer has been kind of a grim statistic. And it's important to have a platform to change the dialogue. It's not a death sentence. And it's important to use this time to actually celebrate the achievements we've made, celebrate our survivors, and give hope to other people. If you can believe it, we're curing at least 40% of the patients who undergo surgery at the Medical College of Wisconsin. This is probably the highest number in the world, so we're really making tremendous progress. This month, for pancreatic cancer, there's a call for this awareness. As 
we get older, it's very easy for us to gain a little weight. And as the weight goes up a little bit, the blood sugar usually goes in the same direction. Probably the most sensitive indicator of pancreas cancer is when the weight goes down, but the blood sugar still goes up. That really is a warning sign that there's something going on with the pancreas. And I think sometimes people don't realize it. Even clinicians sometimes don't realize that that's actually a warning sign for pancreatic cancer. So I think there's a lot we can do in terms of education for early detection. The MCW Laban Pancreatic Cancer Program has a lot planned for this month. If you're on social media, you'll see a lot of content come across Twitter and Facebook accounts. We're doing a lot of things every week through November. I'd encourage everyone to go to the Laban Pancreatic Cancer Program website and just look at everything that's going to be happening. All to provide awareness and hope. There's a lot of hope on the horizon, and with our better understanding of the science, we're just at an exciting time right now for transformation for pancreas cancer. There are many of us who spend every waking moment thinking about how to take care of you. That's why we're here. We don't win every battle, but I can tell you that we certainly try to win every single battle with this disease. And with that, we wrap up this edition of CTSI Discovery Radio. Our sincere thanks to today's guests, Dr. Doug Evans and Dr. Susan Sai. I hope you've discovered something by listening to today's show. And I'm doubly hopeful you'll join us again next time. CTSI Discovery Radio airs the third Friday of every month. So make an appointment on your calendar and join us for each episode. On behalf of the Clinical and Translational Science Institute of Southeast Wisconsin and all of our affiliate partners and members, I'm Brian Belmer, wishing you happier, healthier days ahead. For more information about research or to listen to the podcast of this or any of our shows on demand, please visit our website at ctsi.mcw.edu. CTSI Discovery Radio is written, produced, and hosted by Brian Belmer in collaboration with WMSE Radio. The CTSI and this program are under the direction of Dr. Reza Shakir.